What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Joe Bonamassa here with another exciting episode of Live from Nerdville. Today, we're coming from Nerdville, Gotham in beautiful midtown Manhattan. And my guest is someone who I've admired over the years. You've heard his voice. You've seen his face. You've laughed. That's the most important thing. You've laughed. Um, one of the funniest people on the planet, one of the most talented people on the planet, Mr. Harry Shearer. So please enjoy our hour-long conversation. Hey man, how you doing? All right, how are you? I'm doing good. I'm so honored you wanted to do this. I'm oh, like okay. such a shock. <laughs> really? The fan. Oh, thank you. I'm honored. I'm honored. We met before, and you won't remember it. Um, it was about 2017 in Nashville at the Hermitage Hotel, and you were we, my now ex-girlfriend and I were in the elevator coming from a, a, a floor. And we stop and you and your, your wife um, come into the elevator and she was getting her bags or something. And I'm, my ex-girlfriend and I were the biggest Simpsons fans while well, you probably hear that all the time, but, and I'm like poking her going, you know who that is, right? And I'm, but I'm trying to keep it quiet, mm -hmm. right? Trying to be I, cool. I was trying to be cool, right? And I'm like, and she's like, what are you doing? Like what, what, what is wrong? Right. Mm -hmm. And the elevator closes and I don't say anything because I don't want an awkward elevator moment. You're trapped in the elevator with a complete stranger, mm -hmm. you know, and you get off the elevator and I never said anything. And I said, I should have said hello to Harry Shearer and his wife, because I just, how many opportunities do you get for that randomly? You know? Yeah. You know, I, I learned that lesson as a, as a fan early uh, in my adulthood when I don't even remember the person that was, but I was in the presence of somebody that I really was a fan of and I didn't say a word. And three weeks later, he was, he was dead. And I right. thought, I'm never going to make that mistake again, you know, because uh, you never know, you know this, you never know when uh, a word from somebody uh, will get you out of a funk. You know, yeah. And so, if you have the chance, I learned for me. You know, always take the chance to to say it. You know, uh, it's of course you take the risk of being, you know, seeming like <laughs> right. a member of the public. Right. But uh, <laughs> it's uh, so I I made it my rule that I always will. You know, take the chance of looking like an idiot, but but say. But the best example of that was my wife and I were at a some stupid event in Hollywood and Billy Wilder, the, the great film director, was there. He's 93 years old, right. sitting in a chair in the corner. And I said, damn it, I'm gonna, I, I have one chance to say what a fan I am of you, uh, yeah. Billy Wilder, and I'm not going to let it go by, you know. So I was really glad I adopted that. That. Uh, policy by then because you know i would be looking back now and going oh fuck i could, didn't say how right. much you know when i had the chance so i've had a few instances where i've gone up to people that might that are my musical heroes and have been disappointed or 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 in the response you know um really one that came to mind and we became friends afterward the first time i met jack bruce with the classic rock awards in London and he was seated at my table was sitting at my table um and uh I was like at the end of the evening 
the because ginger and jack were in the same room for the first time and they both went up to the mic and they were exchanging english barbs as they would say <laughs> in a passive the most passive aggressive way and at the end of the evening i said i'm just gonna go up to jack and just say hi i go, I go mr bruce you don't know me my name is joe bonamos i'm a guitar player i just want to say how much my music, you know, your music meant to me over the years and, and how, you know, how much inspiration I've, I've got. And I thought I was so eloquent. I, it, it, I was, it was total improv. And I'm like, man, I just, I just nailed that and stuck the landing. And he deadpans me and he goes, sorry to hear that. And then and then later the evening, I saw Ginger Baker taking a piss outside of the Sheridan Park Lane Hotel on the street. And I said, I'll catch you later, Ginger. <laughs> <laughs> I've already had one. I've already had one one exchange with a member of the band Cream that I, I'll always remember. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, well, it's it's the British sense of the dry British sense of humor, you know. Yeah, you know, um, one of the things uh, that, you know, because obviously I'm a fan and doing some reading on you, it's like, I didn't know how extensive your, 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 your career had gone back to when you were a kid. You, you were a showbiz kid. Yeah. You know, you were on Jack Benny, you know, and, and, and grew up in, in the business. Yeah. You know, what, what was it like, you know, when did you find that you had this the talent that the camera loved you? Because a lot of people want to get in the business, but not a lot of people can, can get in and stay in. Well, it was all an accident. Um, I, uh, like a lot of kids in uh, the community I grew up in back then, uh, I was made to take piano lessons at a very early age. I started when I was four and I had this piano teacher called Mrs. McMillan. And, uh, you know, because I, I, we had a piano in the house and I would bang around on it and my parents thought, there's only going to be one way to stop this from being just chaotic noise. We have to give him lessons. Uh, and I was uh, kind of undisciplined. Uh, uh, she wanted me to practice at least an hour a day. And I thought at most, she meant at most an hour a day. Um, and so after a couple of years, uh, she decided to find a new career. And her daughter had been an actress, was on a hit uh, radio and TV show called Our Miss Brooks. And uh, so she asked my parents if she could try to get me work. And my parents were both Eastern European uh, immigrants mm -hmm. and thought, well, that's interesting or peculiar or strange or something. They said yes, thinking nothing would come of it. And for eight months, nothing came of it. And then she called and had an audition for me at the Jack Benny program. Right. And I was a good reader. I spent the first three years in a private school so I was a really good reader by that point. And uh, I went in and aced the, uh, the script reading at the audition. And all of a sudden I'm walking into this world that I dreamed of being in. Um, and I worked for uh, Jack Penny for eight years, radio and television. And, uh, you know, uh, I didn't think I had anything. I, I, didn't, I didn't even think about you know, am I talented? Am I not talented? Right. I just thought I get to leave school. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, and be with these really cool grown-ups like Mel Blanc, the voice of Looney Tunes. Uh, and almost everywhere I worked, people were, you know, there were a couple of shows where my parents said, we're not going to work with those people again. But right. overall, 
it was just the coolest thing in the world. Uh, what I knew was I was with the grownups, which is where I wanted to be. You know, um, one of the one of the things I, I was like so intrigued about was the fact that like you know you 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 I read that Mel Blank was kind of a mentor to you. You know. Well, and, yes and no. Or, or at least befriended you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he had a son pretty much my age. Mm -hmm. uh, so he, he treated me, you know, uh, sort of as if I were a friend of his son or some, something like that. Uh, very nice to me. We never discussed voices. He never said, here's how you do voices, kid. Right. Uh, none of that. And the idea that I end up being a voice guy uh, mm -hmm. in later life uh, is the most ludicrous kind of coincidence, you know, that somebody would from a, a, a 50 mile away distance, try to knit into some plot twist that, you know, but it's really just utterly coincidental. You know, I mean, cause uh, you, you were a radio guy and a comedy guy. Yeah. And, and you know, like to me that the, those kind of old uh, radio broadcasts like with the, the comedy and sketches and stuff on radio, to me it's like the purest form of broadcasting because, mm -hmm. it, because it's just, you know, you're letting the audience use their mind to imagine what it looks like, and you're painting these pictures with words on radio. Mm -hmm. um, it, when did you decide that? Um, I mean, I, I know you got into radio like in the late '60s. Um, oh, me, me as a as a grown up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, what 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 made you go into radio in in terms of comedy? Well, um, I had been making uh, commercials, radio commercials for this uh, rock uh, emporium in Hollywood called Kaleidoscope. I was mm -hmm. friends with the guys who started it and they just, they knew that I sort of had those chops. And so uh, I was, I'd been doing radio commercials for them for a couple of years. And uh, this being the late sixties, uh, people in even, businesses as arcane as radio were thinking something's happening we have to kind of catch up right um, and so uh, this number two rock station in town perennially number two uh decided well you know in those days the fcc meant uh, mandated that even rock stations had to do news uh to keep their license so they said well let's just take these newscasts and and play with them right and uh so the guy who was selling me the advertising time said, oh, we're starting something you might be interested in. Yeah. And it was called the credibility gap, named for you know a well-known phenomenon of the political times. Right. And uh, I went, that sounds exactly like what I want to be doing right now. I had grown up listening to these uh, two radio comedians, Bob and Ray, uh, mm -hmm. who created all these different characters with their voices and with some sound effects. And uh, I, I loved, but they, A, they made me laugh. And B, as an only child, I loved that kind of collaboration. They worked together for four decades. Right. And I thought, man, that's, that's for me. Yeah. So this thing didn't last for four decades, needless to say. But there I was doing sort of the same thing, except it's tied to the news. Bob and Ray were doing sort of, gentler sketch comedy but me being a political guy this being uh, about the news was just the the maraschino cherry on top so i i i did a tape 
and uh, drove to Pasadena where the radio station was headquartered, dropped the tape off on the receptionist's desk, ran away before anybody could say anything. And by the time I got home, there was a message on my voicemail, can you come to work tomorrow? Wow, that's great. Yeah, so it was, it, it, it seemed ideal for me. Uh, I was right away writing and, and performing. There was no apprenticeship necessary. Uh, it just seemed like so much more natural and easy and, and, and hard work. We did three shows a day in those days, uh, three 10 minute shows a day, but that TV would have been a much longer slog to start in. Um, right. And here I was on the air day one. You know, um, as a writer, I mean, that's, that's the hardest thing, you know, it's people have that knack to write, you know, they just, it's just this, they tap into this stream of ideas, you know, and, and as a songwriter or whatever, and, and as a, as a comedy writer, because we all start with the same blank sheet of paper, you know, and you sit there and you stare at it and you're like, what am I going to do? You know, I mean, given the fact that it was a political show, you guys had, you guys had topics you could, you could you could base off of right. we, we had we had had ideas by the dozens being served up to us for free every day right kind of like it is now it yeah. is it kind of, isn't it kind of it's very strange how history repeats itself it's like you know we're talking about the late 60s hyper you know political time controversial time and here we are 50 years later and it's the same it's the same playbook same same tense atmosphere yeah it's, it's the, I, and I find that, you know, it's, it, it's, I'm in New York City at the moment, and I find there's an uneasiness to exchanges between people now that, that I've never seen in my lifetime where they're, they're afraid to show their cards. And if they say something, they don't want, they, they, if they're talking to strangers, like, if they say something, they don't want you to think, oh my God, does that person think I'm a Republican or does that person think I'm a Democrat? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you're at Starbucks, you know, you're ordering a latte, you know, it's like, it's not political, you know? Oh, but, but, but you're having the, uh, the grande. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're wasting cups. Um, right. You know, that's, that's one reason why I, I like living in New Orleans uh, is because the interpersonal uh, atmosphere uh, only gets tense at election time. Right, right. <laughs> People go into their corners at election time, but the rest of the time, uh, and I mean, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm not being starry-eyed. Uh, New Orleans is like every other major city in America right now. The crime rate has gone up. There's something, uh, I think, uh, to the national trauma we've been through with the, with the epidemic, and it's it, it's uh, having uh, one form of expression is people now suddenly uh, freed from uh, their uh, house arrest uh, right. are acting out. But uh, as a general rule, this place is so civil and civilized in terms of you talk to people on the street, you talk to strangers, you look strangers in the eye. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a very different atmosphere. But, um, you know, I've been doing, when, when I stopped, when the group stopped, uh, it wasn't more than a decade before I picked up doing sort of the same thing by myself, still on the radio. Right. Uh, and in that case, because um, radio is so much more efficient a way of getting a, um, yeah, I tried that. 
You won't go in. Oh, my wife fixed that. Okay. Uh, radio is so much more efficient in terms of getting an image and a scene into people's heads. You know, yes. I can do with my laptop what it would take a hundred guys on TV to do, you know? Right. So, uh, I can do it while I'm doing other things, while I'm doing my my day job. Right. Uh, so I, I, in a way, I've never stopped um, doing that stuff because, you know, all through Nixon and all through Reagan and all through the other people, and the the Bushes. Right. And, uh, and then the recent guy, uh, the uh, raw material keeps being shoveled through my door. And um, you know, it's and it's and it's and it's great too because there's always an audience for that. You know, it, comedy is a, is an escape from the day, you know, the daily grind. But you know, also you know, being you know active in real topics as well. You know, I mean, like you know, like what you're describing is pretty much the Daily Show with what the Daily Show did. You know, 15 years ago when they mm -hmm. when they started doing political news, and to a younger generation, they thought it was some sort of you know divine you know creation but it, it's been going on for for oh yeah i mean there was a stand-up comic when i was coming up uh who's still alive and recently was still doing uh uh shows in uh marin county that were on periscope uh named mort saul who was a huge hit when he broke through because he was the first stand he he, he was a stand-up comic who came on stage with a newspaper yeah you know, started right. doing jokes, but, and he had the, his great talent was, and it, it, it stood him in great stead all through his career up to now. Right. He happens to be a wonderful joke writer. Uh, joke writing is a, an art form. I was on, when I was on Saturday Night Live once, uh, uh, Rodney Dangerfield was the host. Yeah. And I watched, Rod, you know, he's, he's a great performer, Rodney was. But I watched him edit his jokes. Uh, he'd write a joke and then, like a poet, he'd get rid of every unnecessary word and just right. get down to the, to the most telegraphic version of that, of that joke. And, and Mortsall was, is the same way. Um, you know, uh, every once in a while, I'll, I'll write something that I think is, now that's, <laughs> that's a proper joke. Right. Uh, because it has the, the concision of, of a real joke, you know, it's just like a telegraph to the brain. Why don't Why don't you do stand up? Uh, I I don't write <laughs> enough jokes. Right. Um, no, I mean uh, I I enjoy working with other people. Mm -hmm. uh, the credibility gap was first, and then I I was partnered with Albert Brooks on his first movie, right. and then I was partnered with Martin Mull on his TV show. Um, and then Chris and Michael in uh, <clears throat> Tap and Mighty Wind. Um, I just get so much more satisfaction from uh, from collaboration, and uh, and it's you know you were talking about writing. Uh, I'm the kind of person who is glad to have written something, but I'm never glad while writing, except if I'm writing with other people, and then it's so much faster, and the ideas fly so much more speedily through the air and you're, and you're yeah, laughing yeah exactly you're you're better you're, you're better being in a band than a solo artist yeah same thing yeah. it's I, I i agree with that because it's you're stronger it's it's stronger as a group yeah um, you know one of the things i always say about spinal tap 
when I, when I, we had a tour, um, you know, when your tours are not doing well, we had a tour in 2001 where it didn't go well. Ticket sales were not brisk. Mm -hmm. um, finances were, let's say tight. Mm -hmm. and we ended up coming home just because it just, it was a bad concept, bad execution. And I wasn't, uh, I wasn't anybody. Sure. Time. Having fun. Yeah. And it wasn't fun. And I remember as just some comic relief, we put on spinal tap just to have a laugh, right. Mm -hmm. On the bus. I'm like, let's just have a laugh, have a few drinks and forget our woes, the mm -hmm. band and I. And it made it worse because your tour was going better than mine. <laughs> You're like, you know, this is a new low. Oh, when, 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 when Tap Across America is doing better. Oh. Had more people at the puppet show than, than we had in, our, had in our gig. Oh, man, I'm sorry. <laughs> but the thing I always take from that is that that movie is so legendary because it spoke to the musicians who can all relate to just about every reference in inside joke in that movie. Mm -hmm. To somebody who's not in the music business, it's funny because it's funny. But to the music people, it, 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 it hits some nerves because we've all been at that in-store where nobody shows up. We've all been misbooked and the hotels are screwed up. And I just thought it was so brilliantly done because it really, it really, it, it, whoever, you, know, you guys who you wrote it, came up with it, really, I, I spoke to a gener generations of musicians that have all lived that, you know, yeah. regardless and, of genre. And, and the thing that I find interesting is that I understand, it, one could say it's predictable that uh, people in the rock business would uh, twig to that movie. But uh, I get that same response from guys in country music and classical musicians. They right. say when we're touring, we take that on the bus. Yeah. We're the only we're the only people in music who can't take it on the bus with us. <laughs> right? Yeah, you can't watch it. Right? <laughs> yeah. But uh, it it speaks to. I mean, obviously, the a lot of the details are specific to that kind of music and that era and all that. But it, it, it turns out to speak to the musician's life on the road in general. And, and, and there's so many similarities past the genres uh, that it does speak to guys and, and, and people in all sorts of different kinds of music. Um, I think the thing that, that enabled that is because uh, we weren't trying to make stuff up. Right. Uh, Michael and Chris had been in a band, in bands, uh, I'd been around band. My best friend uh, in the 60s was uh, the manager of the Grateful Dead. So I was mm -hmm. inside that scene for quite a while. Um, and we had friends in bands at that moment who were coming back with stories. Our first keyboard player had to leave us because we weren't getting the movie made to go on the road with Uriah Heep. Right. And we quizzed him when he came back from a year on the road with Uriah Heep. Right. And the story he told us became the the scene in the Air Force Base with Fred Willard. Right. Uh, so you know, if you do, if you're not making it up, if you're really dealing with the real shit, uh, then people are, and you do it right, people are going to relate to it. I think. What uh, what what made you guys collectively decide to be an English band? Oh, that's a good question. 
Um, I, I think it started with Chris. Chris had been doing this character. I think he'd done him in uh, one of the National Lampoon Radio Hour shows. Right. And uh, so when Michael and he sort of devised the notion that they had grown up together and you know been been friends from that distance from that that length of time uh that meant that michael was going to be british too and i t i think then i toyed with the idea of, of being american uh and it just seemed kind of outsider-ish right uh, so um you know fortunately we all have musical ears so we could kind of approximate uh, the accents. I, I personally was scared shitless when uh, the film was about to open in Britain and I thought we were going to be, you know, oh, get out of here with those fake acts. But right. uh, they, they, they liked us fine, you know, so uh, it turned out to be a good, a good decision. Um, the accents allowed us to be, I think, dumber, <laughs> you know, because uh, to an to an American ear, all British accent, accents sound like people are smart. Right. Uh, so we had that 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 contrast to play with. I read that uh, you know you made the movie in like twenty five days, which is like lightning speed mm -hmm. for a movie, mm -hmm. yeah. and and it was mostly improv because I spoke to Paul Schaefer on, on and I'm yeah pretty, yeah. And he was always you know he was on this show and he was telling I asked him how he came up with Artie Fufkin. And he was saying that that you and and Christopher Guest and and, and Rob and everybody was like it, it. You just gave them an outline to do something, and then the improv nature of of the movie kicks in. It's like here we're we're at a we're at a uh, an in store. Nobody shows up. And was it was it that basic? The outline of the scene. Yeah, yeah. What if you if you looked at the script? And I think this that the script is. Uh, out in, in public now, uh, it would look like uh, a regular movie script that the CIA had gone through and taken all the dialogue out. Right, right. So there's stage directions because the crew has to know where to show up and right. what to set up. But as far as the actors are concerned, they just get the one line, like you mentioned, a one line summary of what the scene is about. Right. Uh, this is what's supposed to happen. You do it. Right. Uh, yeah. The thing that makes what what we did and what we did then in Chris's movies, I think, different from a lot of other attempts to do improv movies is we're not trying to be funny. We're not trying to get uh, a laugh in every ten seconds. We're trying to tell the story of the scene. It just happens that we're funny people. Right. Right. We're going to do you know funny things. But uh, our job is to just tell the story of the scene. And, uh, you know, Chris did like four or five of those. And uh, his only direction ever was uh, related to the storytelling of the scene. He gave, he's, he gave me one piece of directing once mm -hmm. in uh, uh, Mighty Wind. No, sorry, in, uh, not in Mighty Wind, in... Uh, for your consideration, I'm playing a character, an actor who, for some reason, with a, his colleagues think that they're suddenly uh, being looked at for awards potential, and he's being interviewed by uh, 
somebody from a Entertainment Tonight kind of show. Right. Except that somebody is Fred Willard. Right. And so Christopher is walking me to the spot where our chairs are set up. And he puts his arm around me, uh, on my shoulders, and says three words. Don't even try. Because <laughs> I'm going to be run over by Fred Willard and there's right. no way to stop it. Right, yeah. Yeah, that was the thing. I I um I I, I had a conversation one time uh, in, a, in a weird world. My manager's father managed Don Rickles. Oh my God! Yeah, and I'm I'm talking about going up to people that don't know you. And I met him at a restaurant. I just said, Mr. Rickles, my name is Joe. Elliot is your manager. His son is my manager. He's like, oh yeah, the blues man. And he said something very profound. You know, after you know, we're just having a conversation. He goes, because I don't tell jokes. I, t I I tell stories in a funny way. You know, and to your point, you guys are just funny people. Fred Willard is fun. These are funny people. He couldn't and, help himself. And and they don't have to do anything. You could just sit there and you're laughing because of it. Just it kind of it's the it's the it, it it's that talent that that you can't teach. You yeah. know. It's yeah. The, there there was a there was a moment. My mom told me this story. I don't remember it firsthand, but uh, I was on the Jack Benny radio program and there was uh, another kid on it too, uh, at least one other kid. And uh, at the end of the dress rehearsal, the radio show did a dress rehearsal and then turned around and did uh, a live show. So at the end of the dress rehearsal, this uh, the other kid says, uh, Mr. Benny, could I ask you a question? I said, yeah, sure. Uh, when the audience is laughing, how do you know when to start talking again? And the punchline of that story is he never worked for Jack Benny again. Right. Not as punishment, but you're supposed to know. Right. It's comedy and that's part of the toolkit you have as a person who works in comedy is this comedy, comedy and music are so closely related. Right. That's what we find so many people crossing over from one to the other. And so like there's a sense of rhythm you have in your head when you're playing. Yes. There's a sense of rhythm you have in your head when you're exchanging lines with somebody else and there's an audience. Yeah. And you're supposed to know them. You have to know them. Yeah, and, and, you, and you feel it. It's, you know, it's dynamics. It's yeah. dynamics in the, in the comedy, dynamics in the music. Like not to sound like a, you know, old fashioned kind of guy, but I am. Like comedy today, to me lacks dynamics. Like there's some super funny people that are brilliant, but the uh, comedy today by and large, and I'm just kind of par you know, putting it all in a box, but it, it lacks a, a bit of the, the, the acts are shouted at you. Like their routines are, it's, it's, it starts at one level and stays at one level. And yeah, there's some funny jokes, but it, there's not a lot of ebb and flow like, like in music, you know, cause if I just yeah, played but... out all night, it would get old. Yeah, I would I would suggest the same problem in music today. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think dynamic range has gone out of popular art to a great extent. In and I, as I think attention spans go down, the 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 volume goes up and mm. everything because yeah. they, like well we can't lose the audience. Well, the song just started. Yeah, probably a minute in here. Yeah. You know, it's like give me a second. Give me a second. Let let me have an intro. Yeah. I have to ask you this, being the biggest Simpson fan in the world, okay, 
my 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 backstage passes are Simpsons references. <laughs> my my hotel alias is a Simpsons reference. My whole sense of humor comes from that show. I have a guitar named Principal Skinner. Okay, this is how deep this stuff is going. Okay, when you first when when Matt and James L. Brooks first gave you the script, what did you think of it? You mean script number one? Or when they pitched you the idea of being doing voices on, on, on the show? Ah, well, actually, um, I had been around a couple times <clears throat> when um, they were doing the Tracy Ullman show, which right. contained The Simpsons as a little... Inter the, the whole story of that is so much more complicated because that two minutes that the Simpsons filled on the Tracy Ullman show was originally going to be a two minute thing that I was gonna do. Okay. And I didn't want to, you know, basically um, they said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, what I do is characters. Cause at the time I wasn't really comfortable being myself on television. And they said, no, 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 we, Tracy does the characters. So, mm -hmm. so there was a whole discussion and thing. And I just thought, this isn't for me. And then, the, you know, the next person they called or down the line, I don't know how many people they call, but then they call Matt and he comes up with this thing. And um, it was his partner, Sam. Oh my God. Oh, this is, this, this is how I know I'm 77. Um, I'm blanking on Sam's last name. Uh, hmm? Sam Simon. Sam, Sam Simon. Sam Simon called and uh, we have a couple of conversations and I say, you know, I, I, I really don't want to do a cartoon. Uh, at the time, um, you know, I wanted to be, as I say, in collaborative ventures and I knew cartoons were basically done, you know, one character at a time standing in a room doing line 45. Hey, line, line 52, don't do that. You know, I mean, that kind of performance. Yeah. Uh, and Sam said, no, 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 we're doing it. Uh, like an old radio show altogether, you know, straight through scenes. Um, and, you know, it'll be an hour a week, he lied. But um, it, I had some, you know, twist marks on my arm when I finally said yes. Um, so, and I'd been a fan of Matt's, that helped. Uh, Matt had done, uh, been doing a column in an alternative newspaper in LA uh, called Record Mix. Mm -hmm. And the premise was he was supposed to review record each week and the actuality was each week he wrote a column about why he wasn't reviewing a record this week right right and uh, i we'd met and i uh, at a street corner in hollywood it's not as bad as it sounds yeah. and there was a newsstand there and he said he was a fan of my radio show and i said i was a fan of his column so i was familiar with him when sam called and so as i say he twisted my arm and i went oh okay and uh then I came in and, and uh, I think when I saw the first bunch of scripts, uh, I hadn't seen the drawings of the characters. So I basically based what I did on a one line description of right. who this was, and then just the least amount of thinking imaginable, you mm -hmm. know, uh, no analysis, no, hmm, what would this guy say? Just a pure leap of in intuition. Right. You know? And I figure if it's wrong, they'll correct me. And if it's not, 
I'll keep doing it for 32 years. Right. You know, I mean, the, the, I mean, the list of characters that you do are so, it's so many. I mean, it's Burns, Smithers, Skinner, Flanders, Lovejoy, Kent Brockman, Otto, Lenny, Judge Snyder. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, Rainier Wolfcastle, Marvin <laughs> Monroe. And I was reading that there are certain voices like Otto that are tougher than others on, on your, on oh, your right. way. Oh, and, yeah. and then I started to think back to some episodes like you're, you were singing as Burns, you know, and oh, yeah. you were singing as Otto in character, which is even harder to do. I mean, and how did you, I mean, how did you train yourself to, to, to do that? You know, because it's, it, it's incredible to have a conversation with two different characters and it's one person, you know, Burns and Smithers, you know, mm -hmm. you're, and you're doing it live. Mm -hmm. I, I've been to table reads and it's like, it goes down like that easy. Mm -hmm. You make it look easy and it's not. Well, I mean, that's, that's the gig in show business is to make the hard look easy, right? Right. Um, to tell you the truth, I didn't know very much about singing when uh, that stuff first started. And I probably wasn't doing it right. Uh, I, I lived with a wonderful singer and uh, she's taught me a lot. And, uh, you know, I've, I've done much more singing in, in various characters since then, including an album of, of songs in the voice of Donald Trump. But um, it's, it's the gruffness, um, you know, and, and again, if you don't know what you're doing, uh, you can tear up your vocal cords pretty, right. pretty quickly, do, doing a gruff, you know, doing one of those things. Right. Um, and again, I, I just had to learn over time more about how to do that and be nice to my my chords uh, but I'll tell you the hardest thing which is even harder than than singing as Burns or Otto or anything is when we were doing the uh, video games and the only direction that I a video game director ever gave me and gave it to me a lot was louder right and so you know suddenly I'm having to push much harder than I I, I would normally uh, to make the same sound, but to make it, you know, louder. Uh, and, and that's four hours of that uh, right. in a session. And uh, yeah, that's, that, <laughs> that'll take a toll on you. So I have a, I have a geeky question because, yeah. you know, I, I, you know, I'm a guitar collector and, and whatever, and, you know, but like as a guitar player, I prefer a certain kind of amp or a guitar or whatever as a voiceover guy. Is there a certain microphone <laughs> setting? Is it, or is it just as simple as just walking up to a 57 and be like, okay, it, and here comes Mr. Burns. Or is there a specific microphone that in, captures the texture of your voice the best? No, no. Uh, I laughed because for 31 years, I would say to them <clears throat> from time to time, you know, I have a studio in my house. Would you let me do the recording? there and they would say oh no 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 we have you know a special mic and we have the special thing right and then uh last march as we're starting a season at covid time right please record this in your studio and they sent me a microphone so i connected up their microphone and started recording with it and uh about three weeks in 
uh, I am persuaded not by myself. Why don't, why don't you use the mic you use to do the radio show? <laughs> that sounds better. <laughs> so, no, I, I, uh, I uh, you know, I, I do the tech stuff on my own radio show, so I pay attention to all that stuff. But in The Simpsons, I've always taken the position, we're at Fox, that let them figure it out. You know, it's their job to pick the mic and stuff uh, in the studio. So I never, to this day, I probably don't know what we're using when I go record there. Do you, because um, I've been at a couple of table reads. After the table read, What's the process after that? Do, do you, are all of you in the studio together recording? Not anymore. Not anymore. It, it, as I say, it, that's how it started out. But uh, as time has gone on and, and uh, some of us, if not all of us, have had other work uh, mm-hmm. that came along, uh, it became harder and harder to get us all together in one room. So, uh, and certainly now with COVID, uh, we, we just transferred totally to uh, uh, Zoom read-throughs. Right. Zoom throughs. Zoom throughs. And uh, uh, so, you know, when, when the read-through is over, we hang up the phone or we, we disconnect the, the uh, link. Um, but after, you know, the read-throughs anyway, uh, the writers would return to their hovels or their, their cave mm-hmm. and uh, we'd go home and the writers would, you know, basically do the, the rewrite that uh, the read-through is basically there to stimulate, you know, the, the read-through is there so they can hear the lines spoken out loud by professional actors right. and then see what hits and what sticks and what doesn't. And then their job over the next four days is to, is to fix it so that when we record on the following, normally on the following Monday, uh, it's, it's ship shape. Right. And it's, to me, it's amazing how quick the, the read is. It, it, it just goes down as, a, as an episode, you, mm-hmm. you, you know, and, and, you know, I mean, you and, and Dan Castellaneta and Harry, you know, you know Hank. Not, uh, Hank, Hank, multiple characters, you know, I mean, and it's like, it's the ultimate left brain, right brain, you know, and, and, it, and again, I was just like, I was astounded at, at, at the, the professionalism of it all you know i mean it's there's no there's no there's no like well let me let me stop here there's nobody screwing up a line it's you know it's it's that's 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 experience you know i mean that that only 32 seasons i was going to say that yeah you do anything for 32 years you should be getting pretty good at it by that point (laughs) did you ever think it would go that long oh no oh no look when we started uh the fox network was kind of a joke. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was on this. This takes explaining, but it was on UHF stations, which were the, the main TV stations on the dial. Were seven uh, was were two through thirteen. Right. And then there was this other band, the channels forty and fifty and sixty, and and so forth. That you needed a special antenna to get. Uh, right. You could also get them by attaching a coat hanger to your uh, antenna connection on your TV set. And so Fox became the coat hanger network. And the idea that the network was gonna survive 32 years was, was dubious, let alone that any particular show. Um, I think we uh, helped sort of 
for better or worse, ensured the survival of the Fox network. And then for real, what ensured it was them getting uh, NFC games away from CBS. Right. Uh, and, and all of a sudden, all, a lot of CBS stations, which were in great dial positions said, uh, we like CBS, but we like the NFL better. And they switched over to being Fox stations. And right. suddenly we're, in, we're on much more powerful stations and much better dial positions when that counted for something. And, uh, and then, you know, uh, Fox did not have a really great track record with eight o'clock shows, you know, eight o'clock shows are normally comedies. Right. And uh, while they had a good track record with animated comedies on Sunday night, uh, they had very few, relative to other networks, relatively very few eight o'clock comedy hits. Right. Uh, and so we became kind of indispensable. Uh, and uh, I think that really, uh, as opposed, I, I tend to look at stuff that happens in, in popular culture much more in terms of the mechanics of behind the scenes and, you know, uh, why shows are put in certain time slots and the, 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 the things that really motivate the executives as opposed to, oh, it's a really great show. Right, yeah. That's, that's not in the, in the cards. So, for example, why has Saturday Night Live uh, survived so long? Well, most people don't know this, but it's because it's the only show in American television history that hasn't had competition on either of the other two big networks. Right. Oh, okay. There's your, there's your hit show. Um, that's why it can be as, uh, as good as it is and still survive. Um, but so uh, I, I think it's an incredible fluke. I figured if we were going to be a hit show, we would be, you know, like a six or seven year duration tops. Right. And well, I think also too, the fact that it's animated, the characters don't age. Yes. You know, they, Homer looks the same, you know, you know, Skinner looks the same and it's, you know, it, and, you know, what do you think it, it like the Simpsons have predicted a lot of things over the years. I follow these things on Twitter because, mm -hmm. you know, and Donald Trump being one of them, mm -hmm. you know, and, and it's, to me, it's one of the most important shows in American culture because of its nature as a satire. Mm -hmm. And it pokes fun at the edu at the education system or lack of education in, in America. It pokes fun and and brings to light po politics, Quimby and, and corruptness and everything. And pokes fun at religion. Yeah, and, and religion. And and that to me it it, it opens up a dialogue or, or, or it opens up people's eyes in terms of, of the issues, but in a funny way. Mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. and they're going back over the years there's some stuff that the simpsons have done that they couldn't get away with now because it's just maybe too edgy maybe too you know i i personally miss those days where you know it you poke fun at whatever because it it's 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 not in malice it's just hypocrisy well you know uh not to go <laughs> bs academic but uh Freud once said, we laugh at what we fear. Mm -hmm. And uh, to take those things out of the equation, then uh, you're laughing at just silly things. Uh, we had the ability, I think, to uh, certainly in the, in the 
early decade to uh, laugh at what uh, is, is feared or is uh, uh, regarded as touchy. Um, and, and doing so, I think, going back to what you were talking about at the top, doing so releases tension. Right. You know, I know personally that, uh, let's say, during the immediately preceding administration, um, a lot of my friends were just almost frying their brains with uh, anger and fear and all sorts of emotions about that particular president. And I got to go on the radio and make fun of him every week. Right. And I know who was probably in better shape psychologically for the for that. You know, uh, if you if you can't, you're if you're a normal person, and there are all these things that you really can't, at least in the interregnum between elections, do anything about. Laughter is a much better way of dealing with it than just fuming every night, right? You know, with your family around the dinner table. So I, I think. I think, I think this stuff plays an important part uh, in people's lives. And when you start saying, well, you can't laugh at this and you can't laugh at that, uh, it's not good for people. No, because it, it bottles it up inside and it's yep. like, a, like a pressure cooker. Yep. Um, by the way, just to wrap up, I dig your record, Smalls Change. Oh, thank you. I dig the record. I was listening to it this morning and I'm like, only Harry Shearer can get Lukather, Bill X, <laughs> Donald Fagan, Schaefer, and, you know, Taylor Hawkins, all on the same record, sometimes David, with the same song. David fucking Crosby, for God's sake. Yeah. You know, I mean, you're, you're like, I, I mean, the, the list of guests is like one of the, it's like the who's who. And it's a great record. I, I, I really, I really enjoyed it. You know, and I was, I used to, the, the, you know, the way you guys write songs, you know, you're like the way you, you know, you could, you could tell like, you know, Spinal Tap, classic record. You know, those you sing along the big bottom. It's a classic record. You know? <laughs> yeah, well, there's a style there, you know, yeah, I think the what we felt when we were doing Spinal Tap and what I felt when I was doing the Derek Solo record mm -hmm. is uh, there's nothing funny about bad music. Right. You know? right. Uh, the funniness is the pretension, the lyrical direction, all of that. But uh if it's if it's bad music, that means it's not fun to play, and if it's not fun to play, it's not fun to listen to. Right. You know. And uh, I did. Um, I'm going to take this the opportunity that you've just given me to say that uh, we did a a few uh, Derek Small solo live shows, mm -hmm. uh, which were as extremely pretentious as that record. Right. Uh, uh, to the extent where. Uh, most aging rockers will choose to perform with one symphony orchestra. Derek chose a, and one song to perform with two. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there's a concert film of that, which will be coming out sometime this century. Right. So, right. which I'm very proud of. So I hope you get to see that. You guys, uh, you have any, you have any plans to, to, to do any more shows with, with the, as Derek Smalls or any of that stuff this year or next year? Um, I, we are just at the beginning of trying to figure out, uh, now that we control all the rights, uh, what, uh, is in the, what, if anything is in the future for the Spinal Tap thing. Uh, so we're having conversations and, and, um, it probably won't happen that soon if there's anything. 
Uh, you know, we're coming up uh, on the 40th anniversary of the release of the movie in a few years. So I think we're uh, sort of aiming whatever whatever we're thinking of doing uh, towards towards that as a target date. Right. That's it's it's amazing that that movie is almost 40 years old and it's still funny and relevant today. It's like it's 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 well, it's that's when, you know, the work is classic is when it's just it's it stands the test of time. You know? Yeah, and I, I think that, uh, you know, I was thinking about this uh, a couple of years ago. I forget what attracted my attention to it. Some movie which was filled with the artifacts of the moment it was taking place in. And I realized, you know, one of the things that may help Spinal Tap uh, survive the ravages of time is that our budget was so small we couldn't afford to fill the screen with a lot of the physical artifacts of that moment in time. Right. I think you see one telephone, mm-hmm. you see one car, you know, so it, 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 it doesn't plant itself physically in that moment because we just couldn't afford to. Right. And so I think that, that accidentally gave us a physical timelessness that may help the movie survive a little bit, you know, because it, it, it does take place in a moment, you know, the moment of, of certain right. development of heavy metal and hard rock. But as you look at the screen, you're not being constantly reminded by this is 1984, this is 1984. Yeah, and, it doesn't time stamp it. No. And, you know, if you had the money, you would do it. So right. it's one of the advantages of not having enough money. Yeah, the only, I mean, it's, we call artifacts like, the the guitars from Norman's rare guitars, you know, like that the, the the scene and the which mm-hmm. which to be honest with you, the in the interest of full disclosure, I own two of those guitars that were in that in, in that scene. Wow. One of which I dug out for you today. <laughs> this so happens that this one you're not allowed to look at it. <laughs> yeah. All right. I'll I'll turn away. Yeah, don't even look at it. No, I'm not. <laughs> yeah. This was oh. in the movie. This is oh the one that was God. on the stand with the tagger. The, yeah, the, yeah. And I own one of the flying Vs. That wow. was, and um, I, 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 we call him Uncle Norm around here. He, he and I are pretty pretty tight. And uh, he has great stories about that movie and, you know, and the fact that, you know, I think I think it was Christopher wore the shirt, the brown shirt in the movie, and he's he's parlayed that into a small empire. Yeah. And um, I have a, a just quick geeky question: Do you still have the double neck BC Rich? No, no. I, I if I do, it's in storage somewhere, but I don't have it around me. Uh, and then you know, when we did the Break Like the Wind tour, I had a uh, I was dealing with uh, Michael. Uh, guitar maker Michael something who sold it off to a Fender in a later while but he he built me a double neck with a dollar sign for a body right I remember that I think yeah. it was it was on the cover of Guitar World or it was one of those yeah ones. yeah yeah um, I don't have that I have a bunch of basses uh, uh, for the Derek uh, solo tour uh, I had Schechter, who, whose bass I like playing for Derek, uh, make eight 
copies of that one type of bass, but each one in a different color and changed basses every song just to have a different colored bass for no other reason. For no other reason. No. <laughs> I, some people accuse me of doing that. I, I go, listen, I got a different tuning every, every song. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Harry, thank you for doing this, man. It's, it's like to say this is an honor is the understatement of 2021. I'm oh. a huge, I'm a huge fan of not only, you know, you work outside of the Simpsons and Spinal Tap, but, but, you know, you know, just in general. And, and it's just an honor and a privilege to, to speak to you on my little, my little podcast, you know, well, I, I've had a really good time talking with you, man. And uh, I appreciate, I appreciate the adoration. Oh, my, I'm trying. And again, I apologize for not saying hello, but you, you were probably like, like in the elevator a couple of years ago, but I was like, you know, I don't want to be that guy who like, you know, comes up to you and, you know, in the elevator, you're like, Hey, can you do principal Skinner for me? Right, you know? right. Well, that's, that's, that's the line. Um, I have to say um, the, the classic version of that though, is a guy who comes up with like a five-year-old kid and says, would you do, would you do Mr. Burns for Tommy here? And Tommy couldn't care less. He's just using the kid as a prop to get me. To right, do it. right. Yeah. That's the I, I, I met the guy one time uh, at the baked potato in Los Angeles who did SpongeBob, right? Uh -huh. The voice of SpongeBob. Yeah. I didn't know who he was. Right? <laughs> I, 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 all I knew is that he was in, uh, some guy who's from Syracuse, New York, and I'm from Utica, which is mm -hmm. the same area within 50 miles. And, and he was waiting for me to go, you know, I got, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm SpongeBob. I'm like, I, I didn't know who he was, right? I, <laughs> I never heard of SpongeBob. Yeah, yeah. And, well. and, but my girlfriend at the time, she made him ask, like, are you SpongeBob? And, and, and it was a generational thing. And I'm mm. like, I never seen it. And, and, and so he starts doing the voice. I, he likes doing the voice to get attention, you know? And it was like, I was like, okay, well then there's, I'd, I'd heard of it, but the, but, you know, it's like people come up to me like, you know, hey, why don't you, you know, like if you're in a social setting and be like, hey, why don't you bring your guitar and play for us? I'm like, well, you're a lawyer. Why don't you do, why don't you uh, do my taxes or, or yeah. you know, I got a problem with the HOA. Why don't you, why don't you help me with that? Prepare a lawsuit for me here before, yeah. before the punch. Hey, yeah. at the dinner party, you know, yeah. it's like, it's like, that's our professional lives. And then it's, you know, there, yeah. there's got to be a, a, a line. Of course. Yeah. Uh, it's very dangerous if there isn't. Yeah, but uh, thanks right. for being here. Ladies and gentlemen, Harry Shearer. What, you, what the hell? Look, look at me. I'm some sort of hot shot interviewing Harry <laughs> Hey, you're in Nerdville, Gotham. Thank That's you. right. Look at that sign. Look at that sign. You know, in, in the era of Zoom, right, I, I was like, you know, I didn't realize you could, you, I, I could be at the, some Greek, you know, amphitheater yeah. behind me with the artificial. Green screen. Yeah. I spent five grand on that sign. <laughs> I'm analog, yeah. man. It's that that shit lights up, and it's it's. But keep it, keep it plugged in to get your money back. Yeah, exactly. Or your money's worth. Thanks for the invitation, man. Really oh, fun. man, thank you for doing it. Um, and uh, you know, uh, I'm 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 jealous that you're in New Orleans. I, I love that place, man. It's like I haven't been in since '19, and I always look forward to being there. It's just it's the diet be damned. <laughs> yeah, you can diet when you're somewhere else. Exactly. Not in New Orleans. But. Yeah. Listen, give me a holler if you're going to come down here. I would love to. Thank you. All right. Great talking to you, man.